Book One from the point of view of Mrs. Gildea. Chapter Two of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Dearest Joan, you'll have got my wire. Vancouver was right, I suppose. I sent it from Rome. Since then, I have been at Montreux with Chris and Molly, and since I came back to England with them, I've been in too chaotic a state of mind to write letters. Really, Chris and Molly's atmosphere of struggling to keep in the swim on next to nothing a year, and of eking out a precarious income by visits to second-rate country houses, and cadging on their London friends, gets on my nerves to such an extent that Luke and Rosamond's established colonial office sort of respectability is quite refreshing by contrast. I should have loved the Australian trip. Your bush sounds perfectly captivating, and of course I could do the illustrations you want. Besides, I'm stony broke, and financially, the great god Gibbs appeals to me. I'd take my passage straight off. One would raise the money somehow, if it wasn't for... There, it's out. A man has come and upset the apple cart. Mrs. Gildea gave a funny little laugh. The letter answered her thought. Oh, of course, I can hear you sneer. Just another of Biddy's emotional interests, bound to fizzle out before very long. But this is a good deal more than an emotional interest and I don't think it will fizzle out so quickly. For one thing, this man is quite different from all the other men I've ever been interested in. The first moment I saw him, I had the queerest sort of arrested sensation. He's told me since that he felt exactly the same about me, kind of lived before. When I was a king in Babylon and you were a Christian slave, idea. Though I'm quite certain that if I ever was a slave, it must have been a pagan and not a Christian one. Joan, the experience was thrilling, positively electrifying, glamour, personal magnetism. You couldn't possibly understand unless you knew him. Descriptions are so hopeless. I leave him to your imagination. By the way, Molly annoyed me horribly the other day. You know, dear, she had the audacity to remark. He's not of our class, and if you married him, you'd have to give up us. For could you suppose, she went on to say, that Chris and Mamma, to say nothing of Aunt Eliza, would tolerate an adventurer who tells tall stories about buried treasure and native rebellions, and expects one to be amused? Our class! Oh, how I detest the label! And that unspeakably dreadful idea of social sheep and goats, and the unfathomable abyss between suburbia and Belgravia, though I frankly own that to me suburbia represents the absolutely impossible. After all, one must go right into the wilderness to escape the conditions of that state of life to which you happen to have been born. Well, that speech of Molly's came out of a fascinating account my soldier of fortune gave us of how he stage-managed a revolution in South America, and of an expedition he'd made in the Andes on the strength of a local tradition about the Inca's hidden gold. I call him my soldier of fortune, though he's not in any known army list, because it's what he called himself likewise a champion of the dispossessed he has an intense sympathy with the indigenous populations and thinks the british system of conquering and corrupting native races simply a disgrace to civilization with all of which sentiments i entirely agree luke has taken to him immensely chiefly i fancy because he was once private secretary to some administering rajah in an eastern archipelago or indian island and as luke is hankering after a colonial governorship he wants to scrape up all the information he can about such posts. I answered Molly that one may have a violent attraction to a man without in the least wanting to marry him, and that relieved her mind a little. As for him, 
the attraction on his part seems equally violent. We do the most shockingly unconventional things together. He tells me that I can carry him off his feet, that I've revolutionised his ideas about the nice English girl. Useless to protest that I'm not an English girl, but a hybrid Celt. He says that I've wiped off his slate the scheme of life he'd been planning for his latter years, a comfortable existence in England. His doctor advises him to settle down in a temperate climate, an appointment on some city board, rubbish airs and that kind of thing. You know it all, a red brick house in South Kensington, and perhaps a little place in the country. He did not fill in the picture, but I did for him, with a charmingly domesticated wife, well-connected, the typical nice English girl, heiress of a comfortable fortune to supplement his own, which he candidly admitted needs supplementing. Of course, he's not a mere vulgar fortune hunter. He must be genuinely in love with the nice English girl, and that's where I upset his apple cart. In fact, we are both at an impasse. I'm not eligible for his post, and I shouldn't want it if I were. To my mind, marriage is only conceivable with a barbarian or a millionaire. From the sordid atmosphere of English conjugality, upon an income of anything less than an assured five thousand pounds a year, good Lord, deliver me! And you know my reasons for adding another clause to my litany. Good Lord, deliver me also from further experience of the exciting vicissitudes of a stock-jobbing career. Then again, apart from personal prejudices, I am appalled, quite simply, at the cold-blooded marriage traffic that I see going on in London. Any crime committed in the name of love is forgivable, but to sell a girl, soul and body, to the highest bidder, is to my mind the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost. Frankly, I am petrified with amazement at the way in which mothers hurl their daughters at the head of any man who will make a good settlement. There's Molly's sister. She chases the game till she has corralled it, and once inside her walls the unfortunate prey hasn't swallowed his first cup of tea before she has wedded him in imagination to one of her girls. How do you like Mr. Chose? Like him? What is there to like? He's the same as all the rest of the men, and they're as like as a box of ninepins. But what do you think of him? But there's really nothing to think. But don't you think he'd do for Hester? Etc. Etc. She has just married the one before Hester to what she calls the perfect type of an English country gentleman, meaning that he owns an historical castle in Scotland, a coal mine in Wales, and a mansion in Park Lane. Heavens, I'd rather follow the fortunes of a nihilist and be sent to Siberia, or drive wild cattle and fight wild blacks with one of your bush cowboys, than I'd marry the perfect type of an English country gentleman. Give me something real, anything but the semi-detached indifference of most of the couples one knows. No, my man must be strong enough to carry me off my feet, and to break down all the conventions of our class." Then I'd cheerfully tramp through the forest beside him, if it came to that, or cook his dinner in front of our wigwam. Now if my soldier of fortune were to ask me to climb the Andes with him in search of that buried treasure. But he won't. And I confess it, Joan. I'm in mortal terror of his insisting upon my entering the sphere of stock-jobbing respectability instead, and of my being weak enough to consent. But we haven't got anywhere near that yet. So far, I'm just living trying to make up my mind about what it is that I want most. Do you know that since my violent attraction to him, or whatever you like to call it, all sorts of odd bits of revelations have come to me as to the things that really matter? For one thing, I am pretty certain that the ultimate end of being is beauty, and that love means beauty and beauty means love. 
the immediate result of this discovery is that i'm buying clothes with a reckless disregard of the state of my banking account i begin to understand and to sympathize with that pathetic striving after beauty which one sees in the tawdry finery and exaggerated hairdressing of a kitchen-maid rosamond tallant has one who is wonderful to behold as she mounts the area steps on her sundays out formerly i should have been horrified at that kitchen-maid now i have quite a fellow feeling with her piteous attempts to make herself attractive to her young man the grocer's boy or the underfootman i suppose am i not at this very moment sitting with complexion cream daubed on my face in order that i may appear more attractive to my young man i know now how molly's maid who is keeping company with luke's butler feels when we all dine early for a theatre and josephine gets an evening out at the earl's court exhibition with her gentleman sounds beastly vulgar doesn't it but that's just what i'm making myself pretty for dinner there this evening at the french restaurant with my gentleman it's quite proper we are a party of four the other two i may add are not in rosamond's or molly's set i've been interrupted he has telephoned the other pair have disappointed us will i defy conventions and dine with him alone of course i will End of book one, chapter two